0: Verse 8 to 13, you can turn there in the scriptures. There's an outline in the bulletin if you'd like to follow along with that. Typically, our Sunday mornings are planned out about a year in advance. And what I mean is try to stay about a year ahead of what sermons we're going to be talking about, what passages we're going to be looking at, uh, which Sunday we're going to be looking at, at which verses, things like that. And so I've had this passage outlined uh, for at least a year now. And I had a little bit of a crisis this week when I got out my Evernote nap and keep track of what I'm supposed to preach the following week or the upcoming week. And I got it out and I saw Philippians 4 8 to 13. And I got my Bible out and I looked at Philippians 4 8 to 13. And I just got really confused about why I picked that passage. And I just got to looking at it, and I got to thinking, and I just couldn't figure out why I picked that passage. And I'm just going to tell you my, my thought process this week. There's good reason to look at Philippians four ten to 20 as a unit, because all of those verses talk about the Philippians supporting Paul with a financial gift. And so when I got my Bible out this week, I started looking. I just thought, why did we not pick that as a passage? Why did I not outline it that way? And I I thought about it, and I read it, and I started to do a little study, and then I sort of remembered my thought process. There's also good reason to look at Philippians 4, 8 to 13 as a unit, because these verses talk about what Paul wants the Philippians to. To practice. And so we're going to see a couple of central commands in the passage in just a minute. But if you look at verse 9, one of the last things Paul says in verse 9 is, Practice these things. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. And you're sort of left with a cliffhanger. Like, well, what are we supposed to practice? He's talked about... Think about these things, and he said, This is what I want you to think about. But then, the things that we're supposed to practice, you got to keep reading to get to it. You got to at least start into verse 10, 11, 12, and 13 to understand what it is that Paul wants us to practice. And so, that's the reason we're sort of breaking up an obvious section of verses in chapter 4, verse 10 to 20. I want to remind you of one idea that most of you know this. For some of you, this may be brand new, but it's critically important if you want to, want to understand the Bible and if you want to understand Philippians 4. And the idea is this. The idea of God wanting to be with his people for their good and for his glory is a biblical theme all the way from Genesis to Revelation. And this is just one of the things that you've got to wrap your mind around if you want to understand the story of the Bible. This idea that God wants to be with his people for their good and for his glory. And so we can just trace through from Genesis to Revelation quickly and think about some examples of this. Think about Adam and Eve in the garden and God walking with them. He wanted to be with them. He wanted to spend time with them. Think about God talking to Noah and saying to Noah, look, this judgment is going to come on the earth, but I'm going to keep you safe. I'm going to preserve you and your family And I'm going to be with you. Think about God talking to the patriarchs, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Over and over and over again, God says to those guys, I'm going to be with you. Wherever you go and all your sojournings, whatever anyone tries to do to you, I am with you. Think about Moses and God appearing to him in this bush and saying, I'm sending you to Pharaoh and I'm going to bring judgment on this nation But I'm gonna be with you and I'm gonna be with Israel. And then you can think about Israel when they come out of of Egypt in the Exodus and they get out in the wilderness. One of the first things God calls them to do is to build this big elaborate tent. And the whole point of that tent is God saying to the people, I'm gonna live among you, I want to dwell with you as my people. You can fast forward to the prophets and you can think about men like Isaiah and the prophecy of Isaiah that there would be a virgin who would conceive and give birth to a son and you will call that son Emmanuel. He's going to be God with us and we see that fulfilled in the opening chapters of Matthew that they call Jesus Emmanuel, he's God with us. And you can think about John 1 that says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and he became flesh and he dwelt among us. He came to live among us. You can think, what, think about what Paul says to the church in Corinth when he says, you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit lives inside of you and lives among you. That's God with his people. And you can go all the way to the end to the book of Revelation. You can think about the new heavens and the new earth and the new creation. And John tells us there is no temple there. Because God is there with his people. He will be their God and they will be his people and they will live together in that place forever. It's a biblical theme from beginning to end and it's what Paul's talking about when we look at Philippians 4, verse 8 to 13. Here's the big idea on your outline, very simple. God's presence in our lives ought to change the way we think and the way we live. The presence of God in our lives ought to change the way we think And it ought to change the way that we live. So let's read the passage, and then we'll try to break down a few things and talk about what Paul says here. Philippians 4, starting in verse 8. This is the Word of God. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence... If there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. And I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Let's pray. Father, we ask this morning that you would take these words of holy scripture and you would press them on our hearts, that we would receive them this morning and hear them as a word from you, that by your grace we would have wisdom and insight to understand not only the meaning of this passage, but how it applies to our lives. Father, we are grateful for your presence with us. And we pray this morning that you would show us from the passage, show us from Philippians 4 the difference that that ought to make in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Just a couple of moving parts I want you to notice. If you're looking in your Bible, look at verse 8 and verse 9 especially. The heart of the passage is this idea in verse 9 that the God of peace will be with you. That's the presence of God in the life of the believer. That's the heart of the passage. And then you'll notice there's two commands, one in verse 8 and one in verse 9. And the first command in verse 8 Paul says, think about these things. There's something that Paul wants us to think about as a consequence of God's presence being in our lives. And in verse 9, he says, practice, th- practice these things. It's something we need to think about something we need to practice. And the question is, how does the presence of God in our lives change the way we first think and second, the way we live? And so those are the questions that we're going to ask And answer this morning. The first question What's the connection between God's presence in our lives and the way that we think? Just a couple of simple answers. Look at verse eight. Brothers, whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, anything that is excellent, anything that is worthy about praise. Think about these things. I want you to understand that Paul is not just rattling off words as they come to mind. He's not making this list up as he goes. He's thinking very specifically about an Old Testament idea. And that Old Testament idea comes from Psalm 19. It says this The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. It's not a word-for-word quotation, but that's the idea in Paul's mind, rattling around when he says, what do I want these people to think about? The God of peace is with them, and I want them to think about, basically, Scripture. And so on your outline, you can fill this blank in. Rather than our subjective feelings or the ever-changing standards of the world, God's Word ought to guide our thoughts. Our thoughts have to be guided by God's Word. You can see the list that Paul rattles off in verse 8. You can see the parallel passage in Psalm 19, saying, if the God of peace is with you, your thoughts are going to be guided by God's Word. For too many people who call themselves Christians... Their thoughts are guided by what I would call like their spiritual gut. Like, you know what it means to go with your gut, right? I'm just, I have this feeling, I'm going with it. Well, that doesn't sound very spiritual. It doesn't sound very Christian. So what a lot of folks who claim to be followers of Jesus do is they try to baptize that with sort of a churchy phrase. And they say something like, well, I've been praying about it. Well, I've sought the Lord's will in this. And I think what God is saying to me is, I'm supposed to do this, or I'm supposed to do that. They're just sort of going with their gut and baptizing it with prayer. And I hate to be the one to break it to you, but I'm gonna break it to you. Sometimes your gut is just your gut. And sometimes you might pray about it and say, God, show me. God, God, help me to know. Help me to know. And you might have this feeling that's completely wrong. And we have to be people, because God's presence is with us, not who just sort of trust our spiritual instincts, because we know. The Old Testament says our hearts are deceitful and they're wicked. You can't trust it. We trust God's Word, and we submit our thoughts to the teaching of Scripture. Other people just forget this this reality that the God of peace is with us and they just sort of float along with the ever changing standards of the world. Whatever the world thinks, that's what they think. Whatever the world says is okay, that's what they say is okay. If the world says you can't do that, well then they say you can't do it. But if the world says go for it, they say go for it. I don't think for most of those people it's like a, a conscious decision where they say, I'm gonna abandon scripture and I'm just gonna go with the world. I don't think it happens that way for most of us. I think most of us are so inundated with media. Media meaning songs, advertisements, TV shows, movies, the internet, Facebook, whatever. We're so inundated with media. And we like to think that it's just entertainment. But the reality is it's also indoctrination. And if your guard is not up, you'll just sort of end up blending in with whatever the world says in all these various forms of media that we take in. And then you just end up sort of being blown by wherever the world goes. And I think what Paul is saying when he says, look, think about what's true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable and excellent and worthy of praise. He's saying the truth of God, the word of God, the scriptures must guide your thinking. Secondly, following up on that idea, part of the great commandment is loving God with all of our mind. We grow closer to God through reading and meditating on the truth. Again, what does it mean that God's presence is with us? Well, part of what that means is we have to love God with our minds. You remember what Jesus said in Mark chapter 12, verse 30? You will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Loving God with all is of your mind. There's no way around the fact that Christianity is a thinking religion. To follow Jesus means that you think about certain things. One of my favorite authors is a guy named Jerry Bridges. He passed away not too long ago. Jerry Bridges talks about this sin he calls the sin of ungodliness and when I say the sin of ungodliness you think oh that sounds terrible ungodliness but when he talks about ungodliness what he's saying is there's an awful lot of people who would say to you I love God of course I love God I believe in God I follow Jesus all of those things but in their daily life their thoughts rarely go to God They're thinking about baseball or work or family or where they're going to eat lunch when the service is over or whatever. But their thoughts rarely go to God. And Bridges points out that sin looks awful respectable a lot of the times. Like you can go to church and be ungodly. You understand that? Like you can check into this room for an hour or two on Sunday morning and be totally ungodly the rest of the week. And I don't mean you go out and you just raise all kinds of problems and craziness in Odessa. I just mean you go throughout the rest of your week and you never think about God. Your thoughts aren't drawn to him. And Bridges says it's the sin of ungodliness. It's the opposite of what Jesus is saying in the great commandment where he says you need to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And in your relationship with God, if you want to grow closer to him, there's only one way for that to happen, and it's through the truth of Scripture. It's the only way that you can grow in your relationship with God. Look at these verses, Psalm 119. I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. If you want to sin less and be closer in your walk with the Lord, you've got to store God's word in your heart. Look at John 17, 17. Jesus praying on the night before he was crucified. Sanctify them. Make them more holy, more like us. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. If you want to grow in your faith and grow in your relationship with God, Scripture is the only way that that can happen. We're loving God with our minds and we're called to meditate on the truth. That's why at Emmanuel... Look, we're not a perfect church. If you're new to our church, you're trying to feel us out, I'll just break it to you and say, We are by no stretch of the imagination perfect. But one thing we try to be serious about is the Bible. And on Sunday mornings, you're never gonna see me come in here and say, Okay, I'm gonna gonna pick a popular movie and we're gonna talk about this movie and then I'm gonna try to tie it back to, to the truth of the Bible somehow. We're gonna talk about the Bible. In our Sunday school classes, we're not going to pick the latest best-selling book from the Christian bookstore and pass it around in Sunday school and say, well, let's read this and talk about it. We're going to talk about the Bible. On Wednesday nights, when we ask you to come to Bible study or bring your kids to a water or bring your youth to our youth meeting, we're not going to waste your time with fluff. We're going to talk about the Bible. That's not because we're not as creative as other people. That's because we're convicted by the scriptures that the only way that I and you will ever grow in our relationship with God is by meditating on the truth of God's word. Last idea under this heading of what do we think? Third idea is this the omniscience of God ought to move us to humility, and the schemes of Satan ought to move us to vigilance. We ought to be humble and we ought to be vigilant. I just think it's worth pointing out when Paul says, think about these things. He's telling us there needs to be something you think about. I think it's worth reminding ourselves that Psalm 139 says, God knows all of the things that you think about, all of them, the trivial things, the foolish things, the selfish things, the wicked things, the things that would never come out of your mouth or roll off your tongue. He knows them. Look, when it comes to, quote, unquote, being a Christian, you can fool me. I'm easy to fool. You can fool your spouse. Your spouse probably isn't that hard to fool. You can fool your kids or your parents. You can fool the people you work with. You can fool the people in your Sunday school class. There's no fooling God. When Paul starts to talk about, look, Christians need to be people who think about these things, who center on the word. You can come to church and you can say the right things to me and pull the wool over my eyes, easy. You can look respectable and religious and all that stuff's not difficult. But you're not fooling God. He knows your heart and he knows your mind and he knows the things that you're thinking of. And the flip side of that is, Satan attacks us often in this realm of our thoughts. John 8 says that he is a liar and the father of lies. And he's not going to come to you, husbands, one day and say out of the blue, out of nowhere, you should leave your wife and your kids. Go run off and do this and you'll be happy. It's going to start in your mind with you not being content with the family that God has given to you with you being lustfully desirous that you were in a different family set up. That's where the battle takes place. Why does it matter so much, Paul's saying, you've got to think about these things? Because Paul understands men just don't get tempted to up and abandon their families out of the blue one day. They're tempted in their minds over and over and over, and they give in to that temptation, and they indulge in those thoughts, and they go down those roads of imagination, and then comes the blow-up. Parents had parents up here with kids on the stage parents aren't tempted out of the blue to prioritize all of the worldly things that their kids want to be involved in over jesus so that their kids grow up and don't give a flip about jesus but care about all these activities and different things no one just sort of does that automatically but it's a process that begins in your mind and it's a temptation that begins in your heart of selfishness on your part, and selfishness on your kid's part. Nobody gets tempted out of the blue to embezzle money from their boss, or to steal time from their boss, or to cheat their employee to their, their employer to their own advantage. Instead, you battle a, a temptation of greed, thoughts about greed, wishing you had more, just a little bit more. Satan will attack you with lies. And it usually will not be just some big explosive sin he wants you to commit out of nowhere. He just wants to get your thoughts moving in the right direction. If he can get your thoughts moving in the right direction, he's got you. So Paul says, look, you've got to think about these things. The things that are true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable and excellent and worthy of praise. Second question is this. What's the connection between God's presence in our lives and the way that we live? Verse 9, he says, practice these things. You've learned them from me. You've received them from me. You've heard them from me. You've seen them from me. Practice these things. And he goes on to describe it in the next few verses. Again, three ideas on your outline. God's presence in our lives ought to make us people who are always rejoicing and fully content. That's the example that Paul set for them. The things that they heard and they saw and they learned and received from Paul. Always rejoicing and fully content. Do You remember Acts 16? It's been a few weeks since we talked about it. But in Acts 16, Paul goes to Philippi. And the first person he becomes friends with is incredibly wealthy. And her name's Lydia. And Paul ends up in one of the nicest homes in all of Philippi. You can imagine what that was like when you're an itinerant preacher traveling through the countryside and you come to town and you just, you hit the jackpot with Lydia. Like you got a nice accommodations, you got nice food, everything's comfortable, everything's easy. And before you know it, Paul's where? He's chained to the wall in county. Stripped naked, beaten. And in both of those circumstances, you see the picture of a man who's rejoicing regardless of his circumstance, and he's content with whatever position or whatever situation that God has him in. You see the same thing here in chapter 4. He begins to talk about this gift that they sent him in verse 10. You revived your concern for me. You sent this gift from Epaphroditus. And Paul's saying, look, when I got the gift, I rejoiced. Of course I rejoiced. I'm a prisoner of Rome, they don't provide for me and you help provide for me. You help to meet my needs. I'm rejoicing in that. But then he comes back and he says, "Well, but I don't want you to think I'm complaining about the days or the months or the weeks before you sent the gift because I've learned to be content in any circumstance. I can abound or I can be brought low. I can have plenty, I can be hungry." I can have an abundance, or I can be in need. Always rejoicing and fully content. Paul understands that he can rejoice and be content in all circumstances because the one constant in all of that is that the God of peace is with him. The God of peace is with him. So when you go to the doctor, and the doctor comes back in the room with a serious face, and he gives you the diagnosis that you don't want to hear, you've got to sort of hit a timeout and you've got to say, in reality, nothing has changed. The God of peace is still with me. Yes, this diagnosis is news, but nothing has changed. When you, you lose a loved one, maybe a, a child or a, a parent or a sibling, and it's unexpected, and you start to wrestle with that and struggle with that, you've just sort of got to hit the timeout button and say, nothing has changed. God has not left me. The God of peace is with me. I can rejoice even in this circumstance, and I can be content even in this circumstance. When you lose your job, or money's tight, or the economy tanks, or whatever money trouble you may face, I don't pretend uh, to to tell you, look, just grin and bear it and act like it's okay when you know it's not. But what I am telling you is nothing has changed. The God of peace is with you. He hasn't left you. Rejoice and be content. Brings us to Philippians 4.13. Many of you have not memorized. I just want to read it out of the text. Paul says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. We've said many times this is a coffee cup book. It is filled with verses that belong on your coffee cup or your T-shirt. And this is like the granddaddy of all of them, right? This is the one you see plastered on the wall in weight rooms. I can do all things. I can bench press five more pounds, ten more pounds. Here we go, all things This is the one you see on motivational posters or Facebook walls where you just sort of say, okay, I can do it, I can do it. I can do all things, and it pumps us up. And I just want you to understand something. I don't want you to rip Philippians 4.13 out of your Bible. It's a great verse. But just be aware of this. This is on your notes. In the context of Philippians, our ability to do, quote, unquote, all things is a reference to always rejoicing and being content. That's what Paul's talking about when he says, I can do all things. I can have a lot or a little, abundance or need. I can abound or not have enough. Whatever the circumstance, I can rejoice and be content. And you and I don't have the liberty of yanking Philippians 4.13 out of the Bible and making it say whatever we want it to say. And I'll give you an example of this. Some of you guys came to our secret church. Bible study. We simulcast David Platt every year. It's always around Easter and uh, it's an evening Bible study on a Friday night. And Dr. Platt was going through this Bible study. We're actually talking about Scripture and the authority of Scripture. And he tells this story. He says when I was little, junior high age kid, grade school age kid, he says I'm reading my Bible. And in my Bible I come across Luke 137 that says nothing is impossible with God. He's reading this verse as a young believer. Nothing is impossible with God. And he says in the story, I decided I wanted to sort of put that to the test. And I decided specifically I wanted to dunk a basketball. I wanted to be able to dunk. He says, now, I'm in junior high. I'm about four feet tall. But I just read Luke 1.37. And it says, nothing is impossible with God. So he tells this story. It took several minutes, and he told it really well. You can find it online if you want the clip. Basically, he goes out on the driveway. He starts to pray. He reads Luke 137 one more time. He gets a basketball. He runs. He takes off, and he says, I ran straight into the pole. Just crash right between the eyes. And he goes on and he says, look, Luke 137 is isn't about dunking basketballs. It's about the virgin birth. Read it in context. That's what he's talking about in the passage. And so many people like to take Philippians 4.13 and yank it out and forget the context and forget the conversation and say, I can do anything. I can make it through anything. And sometimes we make it even worse. We don't apply it to ourselves. We just look at somebody else who's suffering or hurting or whatever, and we say, well, you can do anything. We just sort of slap this verse on him without any idea of what he's talking about. What Paul's saying when he says, I can do all things, is not, I can just walk around with a fake smile on my face when life is difficult. It's not like I'm some superhuman Christian that can overcome any obstacle. He's saying, regardless of my circumstance, I know the God of peace is with me. So whatever my circumstance, because God's with me, I can rejoice, and I can be content. One of the interesting things about this passage is the way Paul takes this idea of being content and flips it on its head. There's a group of philosophers in Paul's day. They were called the Stoics. And the Stoics said the one thing you need to master in life, the one thing that you need to master is contentment. You need to be content. And when the Stoics talked about being content, what they meant is, you need to be entirely self-sufficient. You need to be be able to handle all of it on your own, whatever comes your way. Be content, be self-sufficient, and that's the key to life. Paul takes the same word, contentment, and then he just flips it upside down and he says, it doesn't mean that when you follow Jesus. This is the last thing on your outline. Our faith doesn't make us superhuman. Rather, Christianity is a religion for insufficient people. Insufficient people. Self sufficiency is not Paul's message, not in Philippians, not anywhere else. And I gave you a whole bunch of verses, particularly from the book of 2 Corinthians. Because more than any other letter that Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians, Paul thinks about and he talks about his insufficiencies. And I want you to look at this passage from 2 Corinthians 1, 8-9. He says, We don't want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the afflictions we experienced in Asia. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Listen to what he says. We were utterly, so utterly burdened beyond our strength. We faced afflictions and suffering that were beyond what we could handle. Can we make a vow this morning and a pledge? won't make you raise your hand, but maybe you can just nod at me if you take the pledge. Can we be done with the idea, the s- silly, foolish idea that God doesn't give people more than they can handle? Can we be done with that? Can we not say it anymore? Can we not tell it to people who are hurting? Can we not preach it to ourselves when we're hurting? Can we not put it on Facebook? Of course God gives people more than they can handle. We are insufficient, weak people. And Paul says that's the whole point. God burdened us beyond what we could handle, beyond our strength. Why? So that we would be forced to rely on Him. And even in that affliction, the God of peace did not leave us. He was with us. And even in that affliction, we can rejoice and we can be content. Listen, from beginning to end, Christianity is a religion for people who are insufficient. The Bible says sin leaves you lacking. Unable to change your relationship with God. Unable to fix the problem that stands between you and God. Unable to do anything that would earn or merit or deserve eternal life. You can't do it in the beginning and you can't do it all the way through. And that's Paul's point when he talks about contentment. Not like we bow our chest up and we just act like we're so tough we can handle whatever comes our way like the Stoics. That's not contentment in Paul's mind. Contentment in Paul's mind is to say, God, I can't do it. I can't save myself from the sin that places me under your wrath, but you can do that. The God of peace, the God who raises the dead can do that. And God, as I walk through this life, I know that you're with me. I know that you're not going to leave me, but I can't do it on my own. I'm insufficient, and I'm depending on you. And that's what Paul's talking about in verse 13 when he says, I can do all things, not through Paul, but through the one who strengthens me. My big prayer for you this morning, the takeaway from this passage, is that you would be able to acknowledge your insufficiency and your weakness and your inability before God. That you wouldn't come to God trying to pretend like you've got anything altogether, but you would acknowledge your insufficiency and that you would trust in the God who raises the dead. That you would trust in the God of peace. Let me pray for you. Father, we're grateful for your word. And again, we are grateful for this book of Philippians. For the words that Paul wrote to the church in Philippi. For the words that your spirit inspired. For the words that call us to trust and to believe that you are with your people. For the words we've seen this morning that call us to think a certain way and live a certain way. Father, we walk away from your word and we return to you pleading for your presence and your power in our lives. We acknowledge our insufficiency. We acknowledge our desperate need for you, Father, and we rest in the fact that the God of peace, the God who raises the dead, will not leave us and will be with us. Father, we pray that your presence in our lives would change us, change the way we think, and change the way that we live. Be honored as we respond to you in worship, and as we sing truth from your word, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.